Well, good morning. You never predicted I'd be up this soon, did you? You know, there's a saying that goes, predicting the future, that's easy. Getting it right's the hard part. You know, there have been a lot of predictions made about the future over the years. Uh, for instance, in 1903, Horace Rascom, he was president of uh, Minnesota, or Michigan Savings and Loan, uh, he advised Henry Ford's lawyer, do not invest in Ford Motor Company. Here's why. The horse is here to stay, but the automobile is only a fad. Boy, did he put his money on the wrong horse, didn't he? In 1954, after Elvis Presley just bombed in his appearance at the Grand Ole Opry, the manager, Jim Jim Denny, he was the manager of the Grand Ole Opry, he gave Elvis this advice. You ain't going nowhere singing, son. You ought to go back to driving a truck. Boy, did he get it wrong. But I think the most ironic prediction about the future took place at the turn of the last century. Uh, Reverend Milton Wright said this. If God wanted man to fly, he wouldn't have he would have given us wings. Let me assure you, you will not see people fly. Now, what makes that so ironic is that just three months after making that prediction, his sons, Wilbur and Orville, <laughs> had their inaugural flight at Kitty Hawk. It makes you wonder why those boys wanted to prove Dad wrong so, doesn't it? Uh, you know, uh, predictions are hard. Reverend Wright, well, he got it wrong. And the, uh, the false prophets of Ezekiel's day, they got it wrong as well. In fact, they told the people that God would never allow his city, Jerusalem, to fall. So God sends a prophet named Jeremiah. And uh, Jeremiah delivers a much different message. This is what he said. If you change your ways, if you stop destroying your soul by using the temple as a front for other gods, if you stop exploiting the poor, the orphans, uh, the widows, then you will rest confidently in the land that I have given you. But, but the people would not listen to Jeremiah, so God has to send a second prophet 35 years later, and he sends Ezekiel. And Ezekiel tells the people, indeed, uh, the city of Jerusalem will be placed under siege, and the temple will actually be destroyed, and God's people will be taken into captivity. But God places a unique bird, burden on the backs of Ezekiel. Uh, if you remember, in chapter 3... God asked Ezekiel to take this message to the nation of Israel, but God makes him mute, takes away his voice. So Ezekiel is forced to figure out how to communicate God's message to the nation in what can only be described as an ancient version of charades. Now, you remember, we looked at it, what God had Ezekiel do. Remember the first thing he did? He had him play war. He had a uh, stone that represented Jerusalem and an iron pan 
And the whole thing was symbolic of the siege that would take place around Jerusalem. He had to act that out. And then secondly, remember, God had Ezekiel lay on his left side for 390 days and then on his right side for 40 days, each day symbolizing a year of Israel's rebellion against God. And then God told Ezekiel, I want you to cook using human excrement symbolizing the uncleanliness of the nation. And then last week, remember, Chad led us through chapter 5. In chapter 5, remember what takes place. God tells Ezekiel to shave his head and his face using his sword, symbolizing the humiliation of the nation. So for five straight chapters, the, the people have been watching with riveted curiosity as Ezekiel has been playing charades. And now you come to chapter 6, and this is where God permits Ezekiel to speak. So what does Ezekiel say? Well, turn with me to Ezekiel 6, and let's find out together. You can follow along as I'm reading, beginning in verse 1. He says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel. And prophesy against them and say, now these are Ezekiel's first words, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, to the hills, to the ravines, to the valleys. Indeed, I, even I, will bring a sword against you and I will destroy your high places. Now, when God tells Ezekiel, turn your face toward the mountains, set your face toward the mountains, he's Saying It's a Hebrew uh, a phrase, an idiom in, in Hebrew, meaning to set your face in hostile intent toward the mountains. Now, the question I have is, why would Ezekiel speak to the mountains? Well, if you look at a map of the nation of Israel, uh, you'll notice that there are mountains north to south running, and in between the two rows of mountains... Uh, is the Jordan River. They encompass the entire land that God had given to His people. And so what God is saying here is that this proclamation that I'm going to have you make is for the entire nation. Everyone. Everybody. And what follows is the reason judgment is coming to the nation of Israel. Now, the mountains also represent the high places. And you need to know that it's there, the high places, that Israel practiced their idolatry. Now, you can see it in verse 4. Then your idols will be made desolate. Your incense altars shall be broken. And I will cast down your slain before your idols, and I will lay the corpses of your children, of the children of Israel before their idols, and I will scatter your bones all around the altar. Now, before Solomon built the temple, the children of Israel were allowed to worship wherever they wanted. And many gravitated to the high places, the mountains. Well, it made them feel closer to God. But once the temple was completed in Jerusalem, God commanded his people to come to Jerusalem and worship in one central location. And as time went on, the kings of Israel uh, began to make alliances 
with um, other areas, other countries. And you discover that old habits, they end up dying hard. Where they used to go to the high places to worship, uh, they're supposed to come to Jerusalem. But as these kings made alliances with other countries, they did it through marriage. And so these foreign wives ended up bringing in their foreign gods, and these foreign gods ended up wooing the people back to the high places where they used to worship. And after a while, uh, statues of Baal and Asherah were uh, erected in these high places. Uh, And you look at the god Baal, you need to know that he is... Uh, a male god, and he is considered the god of power and the god of uh, male virility. And the goddess Asherah, uh, she is the goddess of, uh, of fertility. And it came to be known that when these two gods would become sexually intimate, it was said that uh, it would rain on the earth fertilizing the land. And the people came to believe the way to help these gods fertilize the land was to encourage illicit sexual activity in the high places, all the high places. And the nation of Israel began practicing these kinds of fertility rites. That's why 35 years earlier, The prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 57, wrote this. On a lofty high mountain you have set your bed. There you went up to offer sacrifice. Also behind the doors of your home you have set up your remembrance. You have uncovered yourself to those other than me and have gone up to them. You have enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed where they saw, where you saw their nudity. And after enough time went by, even the priests were participating in these sacrificial rites. And as a result, the truth of God became muddled. And the, Israel's distinctive is a light among the nation. It started to become shrouded. And over time, these fertility rites began to creep into the temple. And not a single king, except for Josiah and Hezekiah, had the courage to put an end to it, to tear down these high places. And so the irony is that God is going to send a wicked and immoral group of people to do what Israel's kings refused to do. Look at verse 6. It says, in all your dwelling places, the cities shall be laid waste. The high places shall be desolate, so that your altars may be laid waste and made desolate. Your idols may be broken and made to cease. Your altars, your incense altars may be cut down and your works may be abolished. And the slain shall fall in your midst and you shall know that I am God. So their captivity that was coming and uh, the destruction of all these high places is going to be a reminder to the nation of Israel what they have forgotten, that God needs to have first place in their life, that He is to be above everything else in their life. And so you see that phrase, 
Notice, you shall know that I am the Lord repeated 65 times in the book of Ezekiel. Now, as you read the Bible, it it seems to provide us two portraits of God, doesn't it? I mean, there is the God of war, wrath, and judgment of the Old Testament. And there is the God of, of peace, kindness, and Love in the New Testament. So somewhere in between the end of Malachi and the first of Matthew, there is an extreme makeover for God. And when you read this book of Ezekiel, it's easy to conclude, well, God is not a God of love. He is actually a God of judgment. You just read it in almost every other verse. But did you know you can't have love without judgment? It's impossible. When our kids were growing up, Patty and I were tried to stay as in tune as we could with how they were dealing with life. In fact, I remember the very first time uh, my sweet little daughter, Laura, lied to us. I couldn't believe it. It's Christmas morning. She was only two and a half years old. And we told her and the rest of the kids, now, when you get up Christmas morning, we want you to come to our bedroom, and then we'll all go downstairs and open presents together. Well, that morning, we were awakened to Laura standing in our bedroom, clutching the doll that we had placed in her stocking the night before. So Patty said, Laura, you didn't go downstairs, did you? Oh, no, Mommy. Just as, you know, convincing as you could imagine. Well, the doll was a dead giveaway that she had indeed gone downstairs. So Patty pressed the issue. Sweetie, you, you, you didn't go downstairs and start opening presents, did you? No, no, Mommy. Now, at this point, Patty had to make a judgment call. And she judged, rightly so, that Laura was lying. And we both knew that lying would not serve Laura well in life unless that was nipped in the bud. So because of Patty's deep love for Laura, she pressed into the issue seeking some kind of resolution. Now, resolution was pretty easy to find. All Patty had to do was point to the doll in Laura's arms and ask where she got that. Now, it was Patty's deep love Uh, for Laura that caused her to, motivated her to want to engage Laura and press in until she came to the point where she admitted that she had been lying. And at that point, Patty could talk about why lying was wrong, how it wouldn't serve her well, and also bring up the issue that, you know, we really wanted you to come to our bedroom and not go downstairs and you need to obey your mom and dad. Now, I want you to imagine that Laura's response to to Patty's questions when she said, you know, did you go downstairs? Now, imagine that her response was, how dare you judge me? I'll do as I please. And that rebellious attitude followed Laura all the way through elementary school, uh, middle school, high school. Well, if that were the case, Patty and I would have really had to double down on this issue to try to make sure that it was taken care of. And not only that, we would have to mitigate her influence among the rest of the siblings in the family. Now, that's what God is doing in the book of Ezekiel. 
For 400 years, the nation of Israel has said, I'll do as I please. And so out of love, God is forced to double down and address the issue. You see, love, true love doesn't exist in the absence of judgment. True love can only exist in its presence. In other words, for there to be true love, there's got to be judgment. And by the way, the difference between our ability to judge and God's ability to judge is pretty significant. I mean, when you and I judge, we can't know all the facts. He can. So our judgment is always faulty, but his judgment is perfect. It knows everything and takes everything into account. Now, the encouraging thing that God knows But the people of Israel don't know is that in this judgment, there will be a remnant that will make it through the judgment. Look at verse eight. And I will leave a remnant so that you may have some who escape the sword among the nations when you when you're scattered among the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they have car- they are carried captive because I was crushed by their adulterous heart which has departed from me and by their eyes which play the harlot after their idols they will loathe themselves for the evil which they committed in all their abominations and they shall know that I am the Lord So there will be those who will walk with God. He describes them here as the remnant, but this group of people, this remnant, is going to be scattered among the nations. I mean, remember, Ezekiel has been deported to Babylon. Uh, Some will escape to Egypt. That's where Jeremiah goes. Others will flee to other surrounding countries and lands. So they escape, but their hearts, it says, will be filled with regret. Notice, he says, they will loathe themselves as they realize the evils which they have committed. That word loathe is a Hebrew word which means to grieve, to feel disgusted, embarrassed over one's behavior. Now, as we read that, did you notice God takes no delight in bringing judgment to his people any more than Patty took delight in confronting Laura? But God says it broke his heart to do so. He says, I was crushed by their adulterous heart, which departed from me, and by their eyes, which played the harlot after their idols. But by the way, there are several Hebrew words that are translated idol in the Old Testament. The one God uses here is very unique. Do you know what it means? This word means pellets of dung, pellets of excrement. That's how God looks at idols. Now, I doubt any one of us here today would even consider taking a statue of Baal and placing it in our home. I mean, to the 21st century mind, that just seems foolish, doesn't it? But did did you know you can make an idol out of just about anything? An idol is anything uh, that takes place of God in your life. Anything that takes the place of God. 
So idolatry is not an Old Testament issue, is it? It's a human heart issue. Well, when I was in high school, seeking popularity more than God made it an idol in my life. When I pursue success more than God, then my position in the company can actually become an idol in my life. When I find myself pursuing uh, my kids' good behavior so they'll look good in front of friends rather than God, my kids can actually become an idol. I've seen pastors that make the size of their church their idol. Businessmen who've made the size of their office their idol. In fact, over the years, I've observed how we are so good at just going from one idol to the next, looking for something that would give us comfort, make us feel good. And sadly, as humans, we tend to set our heart on almost anything that brings us comfort. Now, that's why John Calvin said this. The human heart is an idol factory. You see, the issue that we face, the danger we face, is not necessarily in the idol itself as much as it is within us. I mean, we're the ones that take good things and turn them into bad things by making them idols in our life. So how do you stop the manufacturing of idols? Well, I love what... Tim Keller says, he said this, Jesus must become more beautiful in your imagination and more attractive to your heart than your idols. That's what will replace your counterfeit gods. So instead of focusing on my needs and what others think of me, I need to focus on what God thinks about me. Did you know you are the apple of God's eye? That's what the Scripture says. You are the focus of His affections. He has delight in His heart when He thinks about you personally. And the Scripture tells us that God will rejoice over us with singing and dancing. In fact, I want you to see what one of the Old Testament prophets said about God's affection toward you. He said this, The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And by the way, do you know that's exactly what God is asking Ezekiel to do when it comes to seeing this judgment that is about to come to pass? Look at verse 11. It says, thus says the Lord God, pound your fists, stomp your feet, and say, alas, all the evil abominations of the house of Israel shall fall by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. He who is far off shall die by the pestilence. He who is near shall fall by the sword. And he who remains and is besieged shall die by famine. Thus I will spend my fury on them. Now, did you know that phrase, pound your fist and stomp your feet, is really an expression of rejoicing? I mean, what he's saying is that, Ezekiel, you need to be excited about this. 
It's an expression like going, woo-hoo, man, God is finally bringing an end to this mess. That's what he's expressing there. You know, I'll never forget the phone call I received some years ago telling me I had cancer. It's prostate cancer. I was only 49 years old. Rare in a 49-year-old. And as I went through the appointments, I um, came to see that I really had two basic options. I could have it removed or I could have it radiated. Now, at my age, I didn't want to go through the next 35 years of my life wondering, did they get it? Did the radiation take care of it? Thinking it might crop up again, show its ugly face later in life? And the only way you can be sure is to remove it, so that's the option I chose. I'll never forget getting the phone call from Dr. Crawford. He said, Doug, we got it. We got it all. Let me tell you, that was a day of rejoicing. Now, this idol worship is like a cancer on the heart of the nation. And God knows uh, unless it's removed completely, it's going to continue to cause havoc to the nation. So he will go to extreme measures in order to make sure it is removed from the land. And he said that ought to cause you, Ezekiel, to have a heart of rejoicing. And by the way, uh, the surgery was successful. I'm talking about God's surgery. It was successful because Israel never again returned to Baal or Asherah worship like they did before the captivity. Now, when you come to chapter 7, it's almost like God has given us one of these, a magnifying glass. And he wants us to see up close and personal what the arrival of judgment will be like. So look at verse 1. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, the end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now, the end has come upon you, and I will send my anger against you. I will judge you according to your ways. I will repay you for all your abominations. My eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity. But I will repay your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am God. Now, we've got to remember when you read that, because it's filled with words of judgment, that God's judgment is always, justice is always tied to His mercy. God allows His people to experience uh, the impact and the devastation, the consequences of their sin. Not because He enjoys our anguish, but because... He wants us to see the devastating results of our sin so that we would run to the only one who will set us free and can set us free. So he preserves a remnant. And you need to know that this remnant uh, will learn the lessons of their rebellion and God is going to restore them to intimacy with him 
So what he describes here in chapter 7 is what that captivity is going to be like for those people. And he does it in four-word pictures. Notice the first. It's a picture of a budding rod. Verse 10. Behold the day. Behold, it has come. Doom is gone out. The rod has blossomed. Pride has budded. Violence has risen up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain. None of their multitude. None of them. Now, God uses this imagery of a budding rod to show that his surgery on the nation is imminent. And he likens their sin to a seed that gets planted. It takes root. It begins to grow. And it buds and produces a rod that will be used for their discipline. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to be that rod. The second picture is a picture of from the business world. Notice verse 12. The time has come. The day draws near. Let not the buyer rejoice nor the seller mourn. For wrath is on the whole multitude, for the seller shall not return to what has been sold, though he may still be alive. For the vision concerns the whole multitude, and it shall not turn back. Now, the law required that every seven years be set aside as a sabbatical year, which meant the land had to lay fallow and debts, all their debts would be forgiven. And then after seven sabbatical years in year 50, that was declared the year of Jubilee where the land would automatically be returned to its original owner. And that took place in the sabbatical year. So that a man who, who was selling his property to pay a debt that he had, he knew in his mind that that land would return back to his family uh, in the day of Jubilee, which could be two years from that point, or it could be 49 years ahead. But that land would be returned to his family one day. Now, in any business transaction, there's a buyer and usually there's a seller. And the buyer is happy because he is purchasing something that, uh, you know, he has been seeking. And the seller, well, he's happy Because, well, he has sold something that has put money in his pocket. But because of the the immediate nature of this invasion that's coming, this Babylonian invasion, the, the writer is telling us that there would be no guarantee that the seller is going to get his land back in the year of Jubilee. And there's no guarantee that the buyer who just purchased the land is going to be able to hold on to it. So neither buyer or seller is going to have any satisfaction at all. And as a result, it will bring about an economic collapse to the whole area. By the way, it was Jeremiah who told them that they would go into captivity for 70 years. So... Their captivity will include at least one year of Jubilee, maybe two years of Jubilee. But that's what it'll be like. The third picture is a picture of a watchman. Look at verse 14. They have blown the trumpet and have made everyone ready, but no one goes to battle, for my wrath is on all the multitude. The sword is outside and pestilence and famine within. 
Whoever's in the field will die by the sword, and whoever is in the city, famine and pestilence will devour him. Now, if you remember all the way back to Ezekiel 3, God appointed Ezekiel to be the watchman uh, for the nation. He was the one that was to declare and blow the trumpet, saying there's an advancing army. But did you notice in the text it says no one goes to battle? It's a picture of the futility of resisting. And notice, there are only two choices. You can go outside the walls and die by the sword, or stay behind the walls and be devoured by pestilence and famine. It looks pretty bleak. The fourth picture is a picture of a mourning dove. Verse 16. Those who survive will escape and be on the mountains like doves of the valley, all of them mourning, each for his iniquity. Every hand will be feeble and every knee will be as weak as water. They will also be girded with sackcloth. Horror will cover them. Shame will be on every face. Baldness is on their heads. Whoa, wait a minute. What's wrong with that? (laughs) Well, what he's saying is there will be a remnant and, and the remnant will be like a mourning dove that escapes to the mountains, but now is fearful and alone. And instead of rejoicing over the fact that they escape, they'll experience grief over their sin. Notice, they wear sackcloth. They shave their heads. That's what the baldness is referring to. They're going to shave their heads. Uh, and all they can do is really throw themselves on the mercy of God. You know, that's not a bad place to be. Totally dependent upon God? It's not bad at all. You know, I'm, I'm afraid we are a whole lot more like the nation of Israel than we like to admit. I mean, we mess up time and time again the same thing over and over and over again, don't we? So it's going to require Repentance. Now, the word repentance sounds religious. Do you know what the word means? A change of direction. That's what it's going to require, a change of direction. In fact, I don't know how many times I've told Patty, I really want to listen to what you have to say. And she'll begin opening up about something. And I'm amazed. I'll quickly move from listening to giving advice, trying to solve her problem. And when I do, it frustrates Patty, and it just shuts down communication. You see, when Patty opens up to me about something close to her heart, she's looking for someone who understands, who understands what she's going through, understands what she's feeling, who can join in the process and help her process her emotions. But... I quickly move from understanding to wanting to give advice. So it's going to require a change of direction for me. It means I've got to turn and I've got to go to Patty and say, I'm sorry, I didn't listen well. Will you forgive me? And then I've got to turn and go to God and really lean into Him and ask for His help. Ask for Him to give me the power to listen rather than talk. 
to give Patty my undivided attention rather than advice. You know what I've discovered? It's in those awkward, painful, relational times that God seems to do His best work. He loves taking things that we screw up and redeeming them. And then He uses those very things to make us more sensitive, more understanding, more like Himself. Now, that is what God is doing for the nation of Israel through all these judgments. You see, the issue is not that we break God's commands as much as it is that we break His heart. And when we do, He wants to do whatever He can to remove the barrier and draw us close. I'm going to ask the band uh, to play worship music that talks about how God desires to draw you close.